Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. If you're a Spoonie or caregiver, you're already familiar with the importance of taking care of your mental health as part of a whole person approach to healing. But there are so many options out there, and many either feel impersonal or are inaccessible due to exclusionary pricing and long wait times. When you're living with complex conditions, you need to streamline your care as much as possible, too. And with Mood Health, you can do just that. With personally designed plans starting at just $45, appropriately vetted practitioners, and a concierge who takes you every step of the way, Mood is a simple, affordable, and convenient solution with therapy, psychiatry, and medication management all in one place. Mood's amazing clinicians actually care about you, and long-term relationships are prioritized over quick fixes. Go to moodhealth.com and use code INVISIBLE10 for $10 off your first session. You can thank me later. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You may know our guest from her award-winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe, her first best-selling book, The Wellness Project, or her most recent publication, SIBO Made Simple. She's a gluten-free chef, Hashimoto's advocate, and an expert in gut dysfunction. She's also a fellow New Yorker, and for all these reasons and more, I could not be more happy to introduce you to Phoebe Lapine. Phoebe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, it's such a joy, and there's so much that we I want to cover in this episode, and you have such a, a wealth of expertise to offer to our listeners, so I can't wait to dig in. And with that in mind, I was wondering if you could tell us when and how you first realized that your health was in a dip and, and what steps you've taken to control it since then. Sure. So I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis when I was 22, just on a regular annual visit to my childhood doctor. So, you know, many women don't get diagnosed right away, don't even have doctors who check, you know, thyroid antibodies to confirm the autoimmune disease um, form of hypothyroidism. So I was very lucky in that sense. Um, However, I was also very young and immature and not really feeling too many symptoms at the time. Um, And my doctor didn't really kind of explain what a thyroid was, what an autoimmune disease was. She just said, you know, it's totally normal. You'll just go on this synthetic hormone and be on it for the rest of your life. And 
for whatever reason, that did not sit well with me. I was kind of raised in like an organic minded household. And even though I, of course, you know, being a hypocrite have been on birth control and all these other, you know, drugs in the course of my life, just the idea of being dependent on medication for something that I didn't really understand or, you know, wasn't suffering from yet, um, just didn't sit well with me. So I just left the office and pretended the conversation never happened and went on living my life. And that's when my health really did take a dip. Um, I had quit my corporate job around this time. I was trying to make it, you know, as an aspiring chef and omnivore and was kind of hustling all over New York City, which as you know, is a very strenuous place to live, even if you're not doing a super physical job and cooking, catering, private chefing was definitely very physical. So I slowly kind of wound my way down to my version of rock bottom. And eventually I kind of, you know, woke up one day and was like, hmm, I, you know, I'm not sleeping through the night. I'm waking up in a pool of sweat and yet I'm exhausted all the time. And my skin's a mess and my hair is falling out and I'm doubled over in pain every time I eat, which is like kind of an occupational hazard. And eventually I kind of got my act together and went to go see a more holistic doctor who put me on my first elimination diet and, you know, did a ton of ancillary blood work. And kind of the result of, of that um, first foray into holistic medicine meant that I stopped eating gluten. And that was 10 plus years ago now. So I've been off it pretty strictly for a while. And I did end up feeling a little bit better, but eventually I kind of reached another plateau. And then the more I kind of fell down the wellness rabbit hole, the more, you know, the longer the to-do list got in terms of everything I need to do in order to control my autoimmune disease. And I kind of found myself, you know, having started on the side of denial, swinging to, you know, this place of overwhelm and obsession and just thinking to myself, well, you know, this isn't really healthy either. And I was, you know, in my mid twenties at the time and, you know, really trying to make a name for myself and just wondering, you know, like if this is what it takes to be well, like how can anyone, um, make it work, you know, financially, socially and whatnot and mentally, you know, cause it just became an, a source of stress in and of itself. And that's kind of when I arrived at my little year-long experiment called The Wellness Project, which um, ended up being a book by the same name. And I got inspiration from Gretchen Rubin, who wrote a book called The Happiness Project that probably more people are familiar with than my book, The Wellness Project. Come now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I kind of took her her more type A approach um, to just kind of figuring out this year-long curriculum um, where I tackle each one of my problem areas kind of one month at a time, unlike her, because I'm not actually as type A <laughs> by nature. Um, I didn't want it to be cumulative. I didn't want it to be gimmicky. I really just wanted to, you know, say, okay, like, let's take it one step at a time. Let, you know, we can't just start sleeping eight hours a night and drinking, you know, half your body weight in water and de-stressing and eating perfectly and cooking every day, you know, all at once. So it was kind of my way of distilling, um, kind of the end goal into more manageable habits and learning to support my liver and my gut and my hormones and all that. And it really did work. I mean, my blood work was so much better by the end of the year. My thyroid was, you know, finally functioning again with the help of medic some medication, I will add, because I actually don't think that my decision to forego medication was the right choice. Um, it ultimately led me to where I am today and to, you know, learn all these important lessons 
lessons in between, but I think, you know, the ideal path would have been a combination of the two. So I didn't have to experience rock bottom in the way (laughs) that I did. Um, but yeah, and that's, that kind of eventually led me to the wellness project 2.0, which was my experience with SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, but I've been talking for a while, so I'll just take a break. (laughs) No, I would throw it back to you. (laughs) This is all about you. So the more you talk, the better. And I I mean, I love to learn about the SIBO piece here too, because this is something that as you discuss in your book, um, and for anyone who perhaps has SIBO or is looking into it at the moment, you may realize that there is some um, comorbidity here with autoimmune diseases, especially autoimmune diseases of the thyroid and especially Hashimoto's disease. Yep. Can you talk to us about how you discovered that you had SIBO and tell us also um, sort of what SIBO is? Because listeners will be semi-familiar with Hashimoto's because I also have it. So I'm team Hashis with you. (laughs) Hello. Um, Hello, hello. You know, hypothyroidism and an autoimmune of the thyroid. But if you could talk to us about the SIBO journey there, that would be amazing. Yeah. So I was actually diagnosed about seven months after my book, The Wellness Project came out. And, you know, I really thought I had it all together, had my, my self-care toolkit firmly in my back pocket, but, you know, launching a book is a bit of a stressful process and I was traveling a lot and, you know, just a bit like a bit out of my routine. And I think just overall stressed out, you know, it was like a big piece of my soul in addition to like a big piece of professional work that was coming out into the world. And I put a lot of pressure on myself as many autoimmune people do. And so kind of in the fall, I started you know, feeling these IBS symptoms creeping up again. I was really bloated. Um, I was burping kind of in the middle of meals a lot, which was a big red flag because that's not something I experienced before. I've of course experienced lots of gut fun, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. (laughs) And so, you know, I kind of fell back on my my toolkit that I learned in the wellness project and through all of this incredible research by microbiome scientists. And I started eating more fiber and drinking more kombucha and eating more, you know, fermented foods. And I just kind of was making my symptoms worse and was noticing that I was feeling even more bloated and even more miserable after these meals with lots of beans and cauliflower and whatnot. Um, So eventually I just went back to my doctor who's amazing and, you know, did another workup, but he immediately was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to test you for SIBO. And he was right. And it's funny because I thought I knew everything there was to know about gut health um, from all my research and SIBO hadn't really come up. I knew, you know, the acronym, which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Um, but I didn't really know what it meant. And I knew about the low FODMAP diet because people had asked me for recipes regarding it. And I had done a bunch of research, you know, around it just to give people resources, but I kind of didn't understand the correlation and just kind of this subset of gut dysfunction and how different it was from, you know, again, the toolkit that I was applying with the fermented foods and whatnot. So, Um, for those who don't know, and who are just kind of familiar with like gut health and more broad strokes, the majority of your beneficial gut bacteria is housed in the large intestine, you know, kind of every area of your digestive tract has its own unique, you know, microbiome, but the small intestine is not designed to withstand many 
don't have a role in your process there because it's where you yourself absorb your nutrients. So when there's other mouths competing for your dinner, um, not only can it cause, you know, some downwind problems of nutrient deficiency and, you know, a, a bit of dysfunction and inflammation in the gut, but it can also cause all these really uncomfortable symptoms because when critters eat food that they like, they release gas. And when that gas is so much further away from an exit ramp, it gets trapped and can create like really uncomfortable distension and bloating. And it can also cause, you know, the gases to try and get out any way possible, like through burping, um, finding another exit ramp. And, you know, with SIBO, there's a lot of different, um, things on the symptom list because it does, as you mentioned, dovetail with autoimmune disease. So, you know, once we get into the leaky gut issue, which, you know, is very much tied to SIBO because again, the bacteria in that area of your intestinal tract that is not designed to, you know, kind of keep critters bacteria separate with a thick mucus layer um, are then kind of in, in, what's the word I'm looking for, are um, tangoing with your immune system then. And again, that gas itself can damage your intestinal wall, but then also kind of once your immune system gets involved, the fog of war intensifies. Um, so once you know leaky gut becomes a reality for people and there is a bit of a chicken or the egg question with SIBO in terms of autoimmune disease, you know, SIBO can certainly cause autoimmune disease through leaky gut. Um, but then also we know that autoimmune diseases can make someone more likely to have SIBO. And, you know, we can talk about kind of all the root causes for SIBO and why it happens in a little bit, but, um, just for people, you know, who, who are wondering if this applies to them, you know, besides just kind of the usual IBS symptoms, you know, food sensitivities, um, joint pain, kind of again, skin issues, like any, anything that could manifest as some sort of autoimmune, um, issue, um, can also be on the symptom list for SIBO. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that you, you talk about in the book um, and that, you know, you talk about whenever you're talking about SIBO as well, speaking of root causes here is that it's not a one size fits all approach. And this yeah. also applies to Hashimoto's, doesn't it? The, mm -hmm. the treatment is rarely a one size fits all approach. I'm curious to, to know not only about some of these root causes, um, but also about your relationship to functional medicine, mm. how you sought treatment, because a lot of us in this autoimmune world, those of us who have gut dysfunction, we find that we only get relief when we actually pursue a functional or integrative medicine pathway. Yeah. So I'm wondering um, how you knew to look for that and what that has looked like for you. Yeah. Again, I was really lucky because my mom has been, has had her own health issues, has been on a path with functional medicine before it was called functional medicine. Um, she was like into homeopathy when I was growing up and, um, and had, you know, kind of an integrative person in New York who was who I ended up seeing when I was first trying to deal with the Hashimoto's piece. And then I eventually just through kind of, um, other practitioners I saw found the functional medicine doctor who diagnosed my SIBO and who I'm still with today. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really a shame um, with SIBO. It's it's such a new diagnosis that most GIs, just regular GIs, you know, have heard of it, but aren't really savvy at even the testing, let alone, you know, the diagnosis and the treatment. And as you mentioned, the treatment is very complicated. Everyone's, you know, large intestine 
large intestinal microbiome is more unique than a fingerprint. And so when you think about what's overgrowing, you know, further upstream, we have to think about that being the case as well. You know, there are just so many different species, so many combinations. Of course, not every treatment is going to help eradicate that overgrowth for everyone because, you know, each, each critter reacts differently to different things. So there's a lot of bet hedging that you need to do. And then, you know, a lot of healing that needs to happen on the other end, which again, you know, can be different for everyone. Absolutely. And I'm wondering as well, like your relationship to advocacy in all of this, because obviously Mm. as you are experimenting with treatments, as you are looking deeper into your own health, you're writing the wellness project, you're (laughs) continuing to write your blog. So you're sharing all of these tips and tricks. Um, You're sharing your experience with your audience Did that change your relationship to yourself and to your own health as you were sharing with the world? Yes. I mean, it is like not a double-edged sword to some extent, but you know, there can be a downside to doing what I do. Um, But also, you know, incredible silver lining. So when I was first dealing with SIBO, like going on a low FODMAP diet and trying all these things, like it, you know, it never feels good to have to go on a restrictive diet, but I knew that, you know, creating the resources and actually living through it was going to, you know, help me on the other end, um, better serve my audience. And as I mentioned, I had already created all these resources around the low FODMAP diet. And the irony is that I had never tried it myself. So (laughs) I would literally go to my own posts (laughs) with recipe roundups and with like tips and tricks for cooking. And you know, take my own medicine. And it was great. I was like, you know what, this is actually good advice. And then I added to it, of course, but you know, it was nice to, to be able to live through that as uncomfortable as it was, you know, in the day to day. Um, but yeah, I never expected to become a SIBO guru or a SIBO expert. I was just, again, you know, talking about my own experience and then seeing all these people come out of the woodwork and be like, oh my gosh, I have SIBO too. Like, tell me more about that. What you're describing sounds so much like me. I'd never heard of SIBO. And a lot of people, you know, I learned, you know, not self-diagnosed from, you know, the posts themselves, but, you know, took them to their practitioners and demanded that they get a test for SIBO or sought out, you know, some of the options for at-home testing, um, themselves. So, I mean, that's incredible to hear because I wish I had known about some of these things way earlier on in my journey. And I kind of joke that I'm in the business of writing books that I wish I had had when I was dealing, you know, with certain health ailments. And certainly, you know, once I went down the SIBO rabbit hole, it was really confusing. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. There's a lot that's just, you know, a big old question mark, because again, it's so new that a lot of the research hasn't been solidified or done at all yet. And you know, kind of, it's one of those conditions where the people on the ground, the functional medicine doctors and, you know, various naturopaths and holistic folks who are dealing with stubborn SIBO cases day in and day out have a lot of really relevant clinical information that potentially, you know, a medical practitioner wouldn't feel comfortable talking about publicly yet because it hasn't been validated, but I'm just a layman. And so I started my podcast to kind of interview a lot of those practitioners and just find out what was working, what wasn't. And yeah, just get some of that practical advice that people could use at home because ultimately as important 
as it is for SIBO to kind of get that treatment right. Um, as I mentioned too, like there's also so much that needs to be done on the healing front um, to kind of get from point A to point B of, you know, this acute gut issue to having overall good gut health that will prevent, you know, f- further SIBO from happening down the line. And it's not just about the gut here either, is it? It's yes. also about lifestyle in general. And like stress mm-hmm. management is a huge piece of the puzzle too, right? Also, Oh, the- Yeah. I was about to say that everything I learned in the wellness project, I just had to hit home again in the SIBO Made Simple book. And, you know, people are looking for the silver bullet. They're looking at the treatment section, but ultimately, yes, absolutely. Sleep, stress management, gentle exercise, hydration, like all of these things are so important um, for overcoming SIBO as well. And I think the stress management piece is the underappreciated one because I think stress is an underappreciated root cause. Um, And we can can get into the nitty gritty of the root causes, but... I have people who message me and are like, what if I can't find my root cause? And I'm like, but stress is a root cause. Like, are you telling me that you're not stressed? Like we're all stressed on some level. Um, I do think though, that it can be like the catalyst that pushes you over the edge because I have Hashi's, which is, you know, a potential root cause of SIBO. You know, I have all of these various, you know, risk factors, but the only thing that really changed in my life was an upping of my stress level that year. So I do think it was what put me over the edge. Can we talk about those root causes? Let's get into that. I'd love to learn more about um, where you see the root causes occurring for patients and, and how anyone tuning into this who is like, hmm, this sounds like it could be me, like should be looking at. Yeah. So I think most people with SIBO, unless it is just, you know, kind of, again, there's a catalyst event, it's a freak thing. Most people have kind of root causes that straddle several buckets. You know, there's rarely someone who is just one thing. Um, so the three different buckets I think are really interesting. Um, and by the way, I'll just say before I get into them that SIBO is really just a sign that something has gone wrong in the digestive tract. It's not a disease in and of itself. It's not something that necessarily has to be chronic. Um, it's kind of all all boils down to these root causes. Like, you can't overcome, then maybe you might be prone to chronic SIBO. But like SIBO in and of itself is not the enemy. It's just a symptom in some ways. Um, so the first big risk factor, um, root cause bucket would be, you know, bacteria are not killed coming in through the nose and mouth. We are exposed to, you know, various critters every single day. It's completely natural. And we have an entire digestive system that's designed to neutralize unwanted pathogens. Um, so, you know, that starts with our stomach acid, which is super important and having low stomach acid has a huge overlap with SIBO cases. Um, then there's your own immune system. So, you know, if you are on immune suppressants or just immunodeficient in some way that can also affect, you know, a a foreigner's ability to kind of take hold in the small intestine. And as I mentioned, you know, your immune system is, you know, very much at play there. You know, it's not separated from, you know, what is coming into the plant because it is necessary to, again, neutralize um, unwanted visitors. And then of course, you know, your bile acids, all these other antimicrobial solutions that meet in the small intestine, your large intestine is primarily water, your small intestine is primarily bile. So um, it's an acidic environment that, you know, again, is just meant to help you break down your nutrients and absorb them. Um, So that's kind of bucket number one. Some people wouldn't call that a root cause. Some people would call it a risk factor. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, for the next two buckets to have an impact, you know, you need to have bacteria getting there in the first place. Um, so number two would be something called motility. And so it's this idea of stagnation that things aren't being moved through your small intestines well enough. Um, and that kind of factors into the third bucket as well. But there is this um, nerve wave called the migrating motor complex that, again, something I never came across in any of my gut research <laughs> prior to SIBO, but it is essentially responsible for cleaning up after a meal. So it kicks in during a fasting state of 90 minutes or more, which is really important to know. And, you know, something that I just wish I'd known historically about my digestive system. Um, but essentially, you know, peristalsis kind of moves food through, but then this street sweeper wave, this, you know, kind of flipping of nerve cells, just make sure that all of the debris afterwards gets moved through as well. Um, so it's kind of like your intestines dishwasher function. So, most of SIBO research that's happened um, through Cedar sinai in LA, which is kind of a hub of a lot of the research that's going on for SIBO, has pointed to has pointed towards motility, some sort of breakdown in the migrating motor complex as one of the big root causes for SIBO. Because again, a little debris, no big deal. But once that starts to accumulate over time, um, you know, it's very easy for an opportunist to just kind of pull off the highway and set up shop and stay for a while. Um, and one of the really interesting ways that you can have an issue with your migrating motor complex is actually an acute case of food poisoning. So that would be one of the instances where someone might just have kind of a one and done SIBO issue. Um, so what happens is if you, you know, get food poisoning in a foreign country or just eat, you know, some potato salad that's been sitting out for a while, 4th of July. Um, and, you know, a foreign invader comes in, your immune system gets up in arms to fight it. Sometimes what can happen is you is like kind of an acute case of autoimmunity. So your immune system can accidentally attack the nerve cells of the migrating motor complex. And so you may not notice, you know, anything happening after that initial kind of, you know, 24 to 48 hour um, period of misery. But then, you know, if your migrating motor complex has been stunted in the following weeks, months afterwards, all of a sudden you start to experience these IBS symptoms and you're not going to necessarily think, oh, this is related to the food poisoning I had a few months ago. It can kind of catch people out of nowhere, but there's actually a test that can verify if that is what type of SIBO you have. It's a, it's another diagnosis called post-infectious IBS, um, but it is essentially synonymous with SIBO. Um, so that I think is, is a very interesting subcategory of the motility um, issue. But then there are other things like Kashimoto's that fit into motility issues as well, because we need enough active thyroid hormone, our T3, in order to power a migrating motor complex. So a lot of people with Hashimoto's just probably know viscerally that feeling of stagnation, but it also is really translating, um, you know, in our guts, um, on the level of that migrating motor complex. Okay. So then the last bucket is structural issues. So it's kind of a, another way that food isn't being moved through as efficient, as efficiently as it can, but this could be something like endometriosis or a tumor or a growth, or, you know, some sort of laparoscopic surgery that's caused, you know, some area of our abdomen, um, to compress and not allow, you know, our organs to move as freely, um, 
endometriosis is kind of the perfect storm because it involves laparoscopic surgery. It often involves, you know, cysts or growths that can, you know, cause our narrow small intestine to go from a four lane highway to a two lane highway. Um, but it's, again, I think this category is especially important because it, goes to show again that if you don't look for your root causes, you could be missing kind of a potential huge overlapping issue. And I I don't say tumor lightly, like, you know, you have to look for the reason why, you know, your SIBA is occurring because you could miss something really major um, and life-threatening. So those are kind of the the three <laughs> the three things in a nutshell. And again, myself personally, I kind of fall into many categories. Um, I should also say that Hashimoto's um, also tends to translate to low stomach acid. Because, again, because we need those hormones um, to and certain nutrients like B twelve to fire off our our gut function. And many of us also have the MTHFR. Uh, yes, that too. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, gene. What is it? The a gene dysfunction or or gene? It's a genetic difference, I guess. Yes, yes. But it's it's um. But that can also play into some of this. And it's it's interesting, you know, this Hashimoto SIBO overlap. Um, and I know that we talked about treatment for both of these conditions, mm. often being total lifestyle overhaul, or at least mm. somewhat lifestyle overhaul, obviously through many of the methods you work through in the wellness project. So you've heard of life coaching, but have you heard of health coaching? A little over a year ago, I had no idea that the field existed or how supportive I would find it to be in my own life. And while this podcast has created incredibly fulfilling work for me as a Spoonie, I wanted to do something more tangible to support this community in addition to the ongoing discussions I host on the show. So I spent all of last year training as an integrative nutrition health coach and taking adjunct courses in functional medicine approaches to autoimmune healing. I'm now able to take this work off the air and into your life, helping you work toward transformation from surviving to thriving. Using my in-depth knowledge of lifestyle, nutrition, stress management, personal advocacy, personal experience, and more, I'm now able to work as your guide on the side, giving you the added support you need as you navigate industrialized medicine in your own search for healing. I'm offering individual coaching with group courses soon to come. If you're interested in learning more about health coaching and how I can support you, head over to calendly.com uninvisible to book a free 30-minute intake session. I'm so excited to connect personally with more members of this community and help you control the things you can control while working in harmony with your medical team and individual needs. Again, that's calendly.com slash uninvisible. Sign up now for your free 30-minute intake sesh. I can't wait to learn more about you. But um, you mentioned low FODMAP as well. And I was mm-hmm. wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about um, FODMAPs, what they are, and how they play into some of the treatments for SIBO as well. Yes. Well, first I will just say that one of the reasons why I wish I had gone on thyroid medication, you know, during the beginning of my journey is for that very reason, because it does become a vicious cycle. You know, sometimes you do need some sort of crutch to just get you onto a higher plateau um, before you can do, you know, the whole lifestyle overhaul. Though that of course will have, you know, the most meaningful long-term effects. You know, if you do not have enough T4 or T3, it's going to affect everything else 
else in your gut and a lot of other functions in the body. And it becomes kind of this vicious cycle. So I think anywhere you can get that leg up, get that in, um, go for it. So back to low FODMAP. So yes, diet is kind of a controversial, um, area of treatment. It's not really a treatment in and of itself, but it is a really powerful way to control symptoms. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people mistake the two. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's not necessarily like an easy correlation. Um, you know, having some sort of hardcore kill quote unquote protocol is necessary for, for most people. And that can be either herbs or it can be antibiotics. Um, but for most people that is what is going to actually eradicate the overgrowth. And, you know, while diet like low FODMAP can be really helpful with symptoms, it doesn't necessarily always mean that the bacteria are going away. So low FODMAP is an acronym of carbohydrates that tend to be, you know, bacterial fast food, or at the very least to be the most gas producing ingredients. And I think that's an important distinction too, because some people think, oh, if I just eat meat and no plants at all, like I'll be starving my bacteria. And the reality is like, you know, there are still some bacteria that can survive, you know, on a full carnivore diet. And it's not the kind of bacteria that you want to be, you know, fostering necessarily. It just might be the type that doesn't produce as much gas. Um, So the idea with the low FODMAP diet is to simply kind of take away some of these most problematic foods um, to lower your gas levels, which in turn will limit, you know, kind of the amount of inflammation and damage that the gas itself can cause and also kind of encourage, you know, the bacteria to go to their rightful home and the large intestine. Um, and then, you know, in some case it doesn't starve them off completely, but, you know, just allows them to go into hibernation, which again is kind of a controversial thing because a lot of doctors say, well, you don't want that to happen during treatment because you want to kill as many as possible. Um, so there's different kind of schools of thought onto whether to layer this diet onto treatment, to do it afterwards, to kind of help with the healing process and to, you know, again, get the stragglers out of there. Um, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's kind of, I think, finding the right balance between controlling your symptoms so you're not completely miserable and, you know, keeping your bacteria on their toes enough that if you're doing, you know, kind of a kill treatment protocol that it actually works. Wow. It's, it sounds so um, in-depth and it is. And I think, you know, these, these diagnoses perhaps seem on the outside to have pretty easy approaches, but it does require really learning about what's going on with your body in order to fully understand the functions to like get your head around the complexities of whether it's the herbs you're on or the diet that you're being encouraged to follow. But a lot of this stuff can be triggering too, right? Because Mm. we're looking at diet. Like what if you're someone who has a history of disordered eating and you're looking at diet? I mean, how do GI doctors even go about sort of reconciling all of those concerns and getting patients to understand so much. I mean, this is all so complex. It's why your book is such a godsend, you know, it's like, because it's honestly, it's like, you can open it up and you can really learn about it and geek out on some of the like extra stuff, you know, but like, (laughs) I kind of feel like unless you understand this, like I couldn't follow a low FODMAP diet if I didn't. Oh yeah. It's really, really complicated. Cause it's not just, there are a few broad strokes, like dairy, lactose is, you know, one of those carbohydrates. And then um, there's one member of the FODMAP family that's like most gluten grains. Um, Sorry, 
so gluten-free grains are fine, but you know, wheat and rye and barley and whatnot, not okay. But then there's all these healthy vegetables that are exactly, again, what I learned when I was researching the wellness project, what you're supposed to eat to foster good gut health, because again, they are your bacteria's favorite foods. That's just unfortunately going to make you miserable if the bacteria is in the wrong place. Um, but unfortunately, you know, low FODMAP came into the zeitgeist and medical literature a lot kind of before SIBO did. And it was something that really confused me because again, it's like, we have all this microbiome research that says that you're supposed to eat fiber and legumes and um, alliums, which are you know, kind of the main omission of the low FODMAP diet, onions, garlic, and um, shallot, leek, all those things. But, you know, they are also incredible inulin rich vegetables that you know, are good for your bacteria. So it's really, really confusing. And I think learning about SIBO actually helped me reconcile those two because I was hearing from all of these GIs who were just recommending low FODMAP diet because of the research um, all over the place, you know, as a way to control IBS. But it did not ever consider, you know, the actual root cause of that IBS and that it might be, you know, damaging the health of the large intestine in the long term. And that research exists as well that says, yes, like if you stay on this diet for many months, it's not going to be healthy for your large intestine. But a lot of GIs, and no offense to them, there's some amazing ones out there too, you know, are just interested in making you feel better. You know, granted, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, don't think about those long term consequences necessarily. And certainly are not asking people about their history of disordered eating before recommending this really complicated diet. Um, and disordered eating is a huge issue with SIBO because, again, like your symptoms are directly tied to food. It's not in your head. You are reacting to the food. Um, but the food is not the enemy and the food is not what's going to actually heal or cure your SIBO. Absolutely. I want to swing back to you and we're going to talk more about the healthcare system in just a bit. But before we get into that, I was wondering if you could walk us through what a typical day looks like for you, because at this point you have walked the walk <laughs> as you have talked the talk, both with um, lifestyle overhaul and healing for your Hashimoto's and for your SIBO. So how are you balancing the demands of your career and your life as you're managing potential flares and symptoms that could come up? Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I, I've tried to not go as hard on the work front. Um, that's been a real learning experience for me. I'm certainly not logging the hours I did in my mid twenties and it's, you know, for the benefit of my health. Um, I just have to always remind myself that, um, but yeah, it kind of changes, you know, seasonally, obviously depending on where my health is and what I need, you know, that was kind of the beauty of, of building out that toolkit for myself is that, you know, I, I choose different things on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, um, and choose different priorities. Cause we can't do all of the, all of the above all at once. That's my biggest learning. That was like the philosophy behind the wellness project and like is something that I remind myself every single day. Um, so I think kind of the most important thing that I prioritize these days is sleep. I mean, I need nine hours, nine plus hours these days. And I've just leaned into it. I don't, I don't think I've set an alarm in a really long time unless I have something in the morning and work-wise, I try not to schedule things in the morning. I, I try and keep them in the afternoon so that I can just let my body, you know, take what it needs. And sometimes, you know, when my hormones are off or I'm just, you know, maybe drinking too much or not treating myself well, like my sleep does get disrupted. And so I don't necessarily have a restful night like last night. I'm actually a little, 
Oh, well, you're Run doing very well right now. Thank you. Um, well, I slept till nine as a result, <laughs> but I was up from like two to four. Or I don't even know, somewhere around there. That's right. um, but anyway, that's kind of my number one for my number one for a long time was the stress management was, you know, trying to get in some time to meditate and whatnot. But again, stress management can take different shapes. Like I'm a little bit more committed right now to the sleep and to exercise, um, gentle and just exercise that gets me outside. Cause I think that's really important for my stress management is just spending time, especially in the summer, you know, near water and in the forest and just in nature. Um, so that's what I got going on right now. And, you know, in taking a little bit, you know, of time out of my work schedule, it does free up time for cooking and making sure that I have nourishing meals around. So I've been trying to do some batch cooking and just like keeping the fridge full of um, delicious things, delicious, healthful things. And yeah, hydration always is kind of second nature to me at this point. But um, in terms of like my schedule for the day, like this summer, I again have just been taking it easy, just having my work day be from like 10 to three or four and then um, taking a nice walk in the afternoon and starting dinner early and going to bed early. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. It sounds beautiful to me. I'm yes. wondering as well, because what you have dealt with, these are all symptoms that are largely invisible with the exception of like mm. the burping and the bloating, right? Yes. <laughs> all the symptoms of Hashi's, you know, joint pain, fatigue, brain fog, and many of the symptoms of SIBO, they're things that are happening either behind closed doors or literally in front of people who can't tell what's going on because yes. it's a personal experience for you. Have you been confronted and forced to like justify or validate the existence of these diagnoses to anyone, be that friends, family, colleagues, doctors who just didn't understand it because they couldn't see it? Yes. I mean, the Hashimoto's for sure, especially since it occurred in a time in my life when, you know, people were um, carefree and, you know, partying too hard and doing whatever and working too hard and doing everything too hard, um, eating too hard, all the things. And, you know, I really didn't want to be quote unquote that girl. And it's kind of a whole narrative in the wellness project of just getting over the idea of being the cool girl and, you know, the one who <laughs> wasn't difficult when it came to group ordering at a restaurant and whatnot. And ultimately, I mean, the issue was all in my head. Like no one close to me ended up caring when I stood up more for my needs. Um, there were maybe a few- When you few... say, sorry, just to interject there, when you say it was all in your head, you mean that people were saying it was all in your head? No, I mean, like the, actually the judgment, a lot of the judgment was all in my head and, gotcha. you know, it kind of depends on who your friends are. There were definitely some that would get on the peer pressure train when it came to me, like abstaining from drinking or caffeine or sugar, because ultimately, you know, it triggered their own issues with their relationship with those substances. Um, but, you know, the friends I've had for the long term were not those people. And, you know, you, that's a sign in and of itself um, of aligning yourself with less toxic friendships and whatnot. And I've learned to like, let those things go and to realize that it's like a you, not me situation. Um, but no, certainly I think it was really hard for partners, especially to, to see, like to understand that I need a lot more sleep than they do. And I need to eat, you know, differently, even though like, you know, the gluten thing, it didn't express itself in a very violent way in the same way that a lot of SIBO, um, 
symptoms manifest. Like, I don't know. And it's different for everyone, but for me, it would be like the brain fog was a nightmare. I'd be more constipated, like, but it wasn't kind of like an emergency situation if I was, um, gluten poisoned or whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah, I think it was hard for people to understand and to understand why, um, I couldn't just stray here and there. And yeah, I mean, it was hard for me to understand too. You know, I think it is, it's easier when, (laughs) when you stray and the results are miserable and a little bit different when they take time and (laughs) are a little bit more insidious that can take, you know, weeks or months to, to get over. Um, but yeah, in terms of in the invisible elements, yeah, I think it was very hard. And also for me too, at the beginning of Hashi's, it was strange, you know, it was not the normal experience. I actually lost weight instead of gaining weight. So I think there are some people who like, you know, rewarded that in an unhealthy way. When in reality, it was just like my gut was not processing any nutrients because it was in such dire shape. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of complicated feelings around weight, the things that, you know, actually are um, more forward facing, you know, mm-hmm. because again, it is one of the few, the one of the few things that people can see and understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering as well, I know that you turned to functional in- and integrative medicine like pretty early on, and you were familiar with these avenues of treatment. Within the healthcare system, did you ever notice your experience being one that reflected either a certain amount of privilege or a certain amount of prejudice, perhaps, because of the way you presented? You're, you know, a white woman walking into um, these doctors' offices. Did you ever at any point feel like if you presented differently, you might have had a different experience, perhaps if you'd been male, if you'd been, you know, someone, a person of color or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think I was really lucky in that I've always had a really incredible team um, that is absolutely a result of privilege because these doctors are not cheap. In New York City, it's so hard. I get asked all the time, like, do you know a great functional medicine doctor that takes insurance? And in New York City, like, they just don't. They absolutely don't. And it sucks. It's so expensive. Um, So I was really lucky in that sense that I could afford it. And then I had you know, family members who also understood like that, that was like the team that was necessary. Um, but yeah, so I haven't had, I'd say I'm really lucky in that I haven't had the experience of not being believed as a woman or like told that it was all in my head or a source of anxiety, um, or whatnot. And I'm sure that happens to a lot of women I know because I get (laughs) written messages from them every single day. And of course, you know, if it's compounded by, you know, the color of your skin that can absolutely, um, lead to even more, um, of the non-belief factor, but yeah, it, with Hashimoto's and with SIBO, like it's heartbreaking. I get messages all the time from people of doctors who won't even run the tests, even though they're not the ones paying for them. You know, if someone wants the test, just give them the test. They're willing to pay yeah. for it. Like it's unbelievable how many doctors will just refuse. And that really, really bothers me. Um, yeah. And it's, it's crazy how hard you have to advocate for those things. And luckily there are, you know, kind of these at home, at home testing has kind of revolutionized the game in terms of, you know, putting the, the advocacy and the power in your own hand to be able to source some of this information and to actually print it out and take with you to the doctor to say, ha, <laughs> but, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. But the struggle is real. The struggle is absolutely real. 
Would you say also with what you know about this patient population through people who have like written to you and and fed back to you about their experiences in the healthcare system, that these experiences of racial and gender inequality, among others, um, that that relate back to identity within the healthcare system constitute their own public health Absolutely. Crisis. And especially since autoimmune diseases affect 75% women, SIBO, not by extension, but yeah, to some extent also affects 75% women. And, you know, there is something to be said that a lot of gut issues do have a mental health component as we discussed, but the actual condition is very real and needs to be dealt with and treated with respect and with guidance. Um, So, yeah, I think it's interesting what's happening with COVID because I think that there's going to be a lot more research that's funneled into autoimmune diseases. And I think that one of the reasons why there hasn't been much research is because of kind of like the disparate buckets um, that constitute each one of these conditions that can be, you know, a barrier to funding in and of itself. It's not like cancer, which kind of has a wonderful umbrella and a horrible umbrella, but an umbrella that allows for, you know, research that can feed, um, that can benefit, you know, the whole population, even if it's a different type of cancer. Autoimmune disease hasn't really had that. But I think the way that long COVID is manifesting and, you know, how many people it's affecting globally, hopefully, um, you know, that won't be the case. And there will be some more attention paid to autoimmune disease, which, you know, again, historically female (laughs) impacting bucket, um, which I would agree with you that, probably has something to do with the lack of funding as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's pretty shocking, the inequalities in the healthcare system where where gender is concerned, even when it yeah. comes down to testing, right? I mean, yeah, what we hear about, um, especially in relation to gender and, and race, can be really upsetting. And um, if we can begin to um, sort of even the scales on that one. Yeah. It could Mm. be amazing. And unfortunately it's going to take a lot of people getting long COVID perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know it's gross. It's horrible on, on a lighter note, perhaps (laughs) I'm wondering what tips you might have. I mean, the wellness project is a book full of tips in and of itself. So everyone should go get that. But, um, if you could crystallize your experience thus far into top three tips that you would offer to, Someone tuning into this episode who who maybe maybe they have the diagnosis, maybe they don't, but is sort of straddling this invisible illness, chronic illness world. What would be your top three pieces of advice? And they may even be pieces of advice that you wish you had known before you got yes. into all this. Okay. Well, I would say number one, that if you're stressing about what you're eating all the time, no amount of kale can make you healthy. Um, it's so important. Again, t- if we just think about what we know about stress and the gut connection with your stomach acid, with your motility, like stress can affect both of those things, which can then lead to SIBO, but on a more basic level can just lead to gut issues um, and gut dysfunction. So I really do think that, you know, the mental health approach to food is so important. And as much as our diet culture is pointing us to all of these super restrictive diets. I don't think that they're necessary for everyone for healing and certainly not necessary if they put you in a bad headspace around food. Um, 
Okay. So I would say number two, just for, you know, autoimmune peeps is that, you know, progress is often one step forward, two steps back, and that's okay. It's often not a linear path from point A to point B. There's like a lot of detours in between and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing, you know, to feel defeated about. I know if you're at the beginning of the journey, that piece of advice not may not be super encouraging, but you know, you can't let setbacks get you down because there will be a lot of setbacks. There's no cure for what we have. You know, it's just daily management and life will always get you in the way. And again, sometimes, you know, put you on your butt and send you those few steps back. Um, so just, you know, keep on keeping on and don't sweat the small stuff. Oh my gosh. And number three, I don't know what number three is. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, those are two pretty powerful okay. tips. I think we can go with, yeah, I mean, the fact that you've been able to crystallize into top two is like, because <laughs> those ones are like pretty amazing. I'm wondering as well, um, what brings you joy? You know, when you're looking to relieve stress or when you're deciding what you're not willing to compromise on, despite lifestyle adjustments that you've had to make around your diagnoses or um, comfort activities, things like that. Like what are three things that you turn to when you want to light yourself up or, or seek relief? Yeah. A walk for sure. Top of the list, like time in nature, um, time with animals. I'm a horse person. So that if I can find a pony nearby to just pet and nuzzle. (laughs) Yeah. In New York city, it's hard. So I don't get that there. (laughs) Um, yeah. And, and, um, number two, I'm like a big, um, as a Hashi person, I'm a big warmth person. So literally like a hot bath or a sauna blanket or a standing sauna. Um, those are definitely privileged luxuries. Um, so a bath, if you can get that, um, if I can get that, that's huge for me. Um, I just feel like very cocooned and warm water and warmth. Um, and yeah, number three, just, I'd say like, having food in the fridge. I know that sounds so dumb, but, you know, having options at the ready, especially if, you know, you're tired, you didn't sleep well, or just your health is a struggle, you know, thinking about having to make dinner on top of that. That's when you really want to dive into the the comfort foods, like the ordering in or whatever makes you happy. So having those things in the freezer or just on hand to kind of, you know, uh, you know, fill that gap instead of something that won't make you feel good the next day or won't make me feel good the next day that I think is very important for me. Yeah. And these are all great notes as well. Um, if, if you're looking to support someone who's living with these conditions too, you know, like if your friend is living mm-hmm. with Hashi's or, or a gut dysfunction disorder, you know, being able to cook something that they can digest properly yes. and like give it to them when they're stressed or go on a walk with them, offering those kinds of things can be really helpful too, right? Yes. No one, besides my husband, no one is, no one does that for me. Everyone's too afraid. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and this is the thing is like, everyone's so afraid, but it's like, you don't have to be that afraid when Phoebe literally has tons of recipes on her website. Yeah. It can be anything. It can be anything. It's it's so nice to have someone else cook food for me. I love it. So nice. I bet, especially for you. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and your community and your ongoing work? 
Oh man. I mean, if you are someone with gut issues, I'd highly recommend checking out the book SIBO Made Simple because it's not just, you know, a complete guide for those dealing with that specific issue. There's also a ton of information in there about kind of ways to heal your gut on a more macro level and, you know, encourage that beneficial population of bacteria in your large intestine. And it's just got a ton of great recipes in there. So there's 90 plus low FODMAP recipes, but they're also, you know, anti-inflammatory, free of gluten, dairy for the most part, soy, corn. Um, So it's a lot of good stuff in there. And I will say more importantly, it doesn't feel like it's free of any of those things. It's just really yummy, clean food. Um, so yeah, you can find that at SIBOMadeSimple.com. You can find me and free lots of free recipes that fit those bills at FeedMePhoebe.com. And I'm always on Instagram kind of, you know, doing my thing over there at Phoebe Lapine. I love that. And what's next in your advocacy and your wellness journey? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know. I have to wait for, you know, the next bad thing to happen. Um, but no, I'm actually, I'm very fascinated by... Um, oral hygiene and dental health right now. Cause I had a bit of a, a tooth crisis last year and there's such a Im- incredible link between gut health and oral health. So I think that's kind of like the next frontier of what people are going to start learning more about. And so I'm trying to learn more about it too. Yeah. All about that. Um, integrative, is it integrative dentistry? That is the new yes, thing. Yes. Yeah. But holistic also a lot dentistry. of holistic dentistry. That's right. But also mm-hmm. a lot of these Ayurvedic techniques like oil pulling and tongue mm-hmm. scraping, mm-hmm. which can be yep. really helpful. Yep. Wow. Totally. Well, I'm excited to see your next book on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, it's just been such a joy talking to you today, Phoebe. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners before I set you free into your afternoon? No, I mean, I have tons of resources. So come join me. I'm a newsletter on Instagram. I also have a course that um, is happening in September called Four Weeks to Wellness, which is kind of all of my learnings from the Wellness Project distilled into four weeks, not a whole year. That's a little bit more lightning fast for folks. And I've had tons of SIBO people and Hashi people through, and it's just my favorite way to support people in a group setting. I love that. That's really cool. How often do you do that group? Just twice a year now. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, that's a, a little note to get on that for everyone. <laughs> and we'll link to all of the things that you mentioned from the awesome. book to your website um, on the webpage for this episode. Phoebe Lapine, thank you so much for being on the show today. It has been such a pleasure talking to you and we can't wait to see what's next. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach and her name is Jenna Chieko. A graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law, she's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually, and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable, and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. 
We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.